Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It's February 17th, 2022, and we will be discussing on the show today the many trends going on in the foreclosure arena here in this still early part of the still new year. I think one of the things that uh, is really notable is the way home values are increasing over large portions of the United States. And while home values are not necessarily going up dramatically anymore in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles, due in part to uh, a lot of the economic conditions there becoming quite unfavorable to a lot of Uh, residents, part of that's driven by the COVID restrictions, part of it's independent of that. There have also been dramatic increases in crime in some of these cities. So the upshot is you would think that home values would start to go down some, but I don't know that they've even plateaued in cities like L.A. and San Francisco. And remember, I'm hosting out of San Diego where I live. So it's very notable that home values are increasing a lot in a lot of places. And in places like Texas and Florida, I think in part due to the fewer COVID restrictions and also due to the more favorable economic environment uh, where there's kind of a more low regulation environment for business activity in general, those places are seeing some really dramatic population shifts. And so even medium and smaller sized cities there are seeing an explosion in home values. So I do realize that the home value increase that's happening in the United States and has been happening throughout the entire COVID era is, I think it is transitory. I think the overall macroeconomic conditions are quite worrisome, and particularly the inflation front is having already a dramatic impact on the spending power of consumers. Uh, They're having to spend a disproportionate amount of money on things like gas and heating oil and uh, food, And, of course, all of those price increases are being driven by the regulatory environment. So with all that being said, I think the bottom line for homeowners is that their 
is an increasing number of homeowners that have significant significant equity. Even among many who have had their arrearages built up as they've been challenging their servicers and the so-called trust holders, so-called debt holders of the nominal trust that purport to uh, hold their quote-unquote loan, uh, as Neil noted on the last show, and he's noted quite a few times, uh, you can't even really show through conventional uh, accounting methods that there is a loan account in these securitized loans. You can't even identify the original loan associated with that loan account in a way that normal accounting principles would be applied to a loan, where there's a clear payee who's responsible and where there really is only one stream of payments where a demand related to that on the borrower would make sense. Here you have the constant sleight of hand and uh, failure to properly identify the fundamentals that would go into a loan. And that's one reason why Neil continually exhorts homeowners to use things like qualified written requests and debt validation letters to pin the details down. In a sense, you're pinning down the absence of the ability of the servicer and the so-called nominal trust to identify uh, the sorts of facts and the sorts of specifics one would expect to show, yes, there is a real loan, and yes, it's the originator or somebody with uh, a proper assignment to continue collecting on the note, even while the same so-called note has been paid off repeatedly in most cases. So with this backdrop, uh, there are, I think, opening, there is an opening of options for homeowners to kind of tap into their equity. We'll be talking about that on a future program. Uh, the purpose of today's show is to kind of play out how trends are progressing here in 2022 and take a really specific look at what this looks like in certain litigation contexts and what this looks like in other legal arenas like bankruptcy court and unlawful detainer cases. So one one aspect that's certainly notable, uh, and I'm seeing a big trend in, is, and, you know, I'm going to thread all this back through COVID. Uh, COVID will typically come up when I'm on He'll show hosting for the simple reason that it's so mixed in to everything that virtually everybody is doing. And even if you wanted to get away from the COVID regulatory climate, uh, it really is there and it's in the mix. And whatever people think about that, whether they think it's too little, whether they think it's too much, 
it will continue in a number of places, particularly some of the big states like New York and California. On the other hand, you again have some of the Sunbelt states like Texas and Florida, to a lesser but still major extent, South Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, where the COVID regulatory scheme is much less pronounced and it really doesn't impact nearly as dramatically uh, people's rights to litigate or do other things. So where it does uh, show up and have a big impact, places like California, I think the reality is people will have to continue to use, you know, video conferencing like Zoom and whatnot, often in state or federal court. Federal court, I think, has become, in California anyway, a major uh, purveyor of Zoom conferencing, and that's become very much a standard. I'm finding a huge portion of all my hearings here in California, and this is where I litigate, a huge portion of these hearings in federal court are by, are by Zoom. So in terms of what homeowners can do when they have what seems like the inevitable notice of trustee sale coming their way if they've got an NOD notice of default that's pending, uh, the QWR and debt validation requests are, are absolutely a way of putting the servicer on legal notice that they need to respond to that or else they need to put the sale on. So you could, of course, have a servicer who's going to ignore the letter. They may claim, or the QWR, and they may claim that, oh, there's some deficiency with the letter or it doesn't meet the standards of RESPA or TILA um, or, you know, even more specifically, the federal uh, FDCPA, Federal Debt uh, Collection Practices Act. Um, we've talked a lot, Neil has talked a lot about RESPA and uh, and the FDCPA on this program and otherwise. Uh, I mean, the reality is if you have a servicer who's essentially obstructing your demands or you just have a sale date that's on you and you feel like you have really limited options uh, at the point you're dealing with this, to get a sale postponement, one of the things that you can do, and as I'll often preface, this is not legal advice. This is a topical show. We're talking about these as simple topics of interest. So don't take legal advice as a, uh, a message that's coming through this program because we are not imparting legal advice. That being said, uh, you might find it useful to look into other the things we talk about on this show, including what I cover today, and yes, check with a licensed legal professional to follow up. So for those facing trustee sales, particularly in the non-judicial foreclosure world, uh, one of the problems that uh, the homeowners often face is, well, if the auction is held in a non-judicial foreclosure environment, 
in a state like California. Problem for the homeowner is the option simply being held means they won't be the official legal owner of that property after that auction takes place. It doesn't matter whether the property sells to a third party or not for purposes of divesting the homeowner of at least the front level legal right to claim themselves as legal owner of the property. On the other hand, it makes a tremendous difference, and that's what I wanted to address right now on the program today. It makes a tremendous difference whether or not the auction sale results in the property being purchased by a so-called bona fide purchaser that would be a third-party purchaser, which, frankly, in California, I mean, there are several predatory groups, and I call them predatory because I think by observation that is how they behave in the uh, auction sites that they uh, descend on. And they will often uh, ignore all kinds of essentially litigation markers that the, the property is tied up. Now, one thing that people need to be aware of and this is also something Neil has emphasized from time to time, the only thing that will absolutely stop a trustee sale is a court order. court order that people are most familiar with would be either a bankruptcy stay, where the automatic stay typically would apply to the, uh, the sale in question, or uh, where, let's say, a TRO is has been granted, uh, you know, upon a lawsuit being filed and for you to even get restraining relief in a non-judicial foreclosure state like California, you need to file a lawsuit and then you can file the temporary restraining order in connection with the sale. But you need that filed lawsuit to be able to file the TRO. So if you get an order from that, signed by the judge, then that will stop the sale. But otherwise, the sale can technically go forward. Of course, some servicer taking the property to sale puts themselves at great risk, uh, particularly if there is at the time a qualified written request, a debt validation letter, or some other legal process going on that the homeowner has put them as a demand where they need to respond. Let's say they do ignore that. Though. And the other thing is, of course, uh, most listeners to the show, however they're listening and whoever they're representing, they understand what a list pendant is. They understand that it literally means that there's basically a lawsuit pending on the uh, property in question, and I think some, possibly not many, but some listeners may be under the impression that Liz Pendens have some kind of legal power to stop the sale. They don't. They're literally a legal notice that the property is in litigation. Now, obviously, most 
potential purchasers at an auction site are not particularly interested in buying a property where they're going to be going right into litigation. On the other hand, the kind of auction foreclosure property buying mills out there in places like California, there's some who specialize in buying uh, properties in litigation because often they're going to be able to get even a lower price for what they would ultimately pay at auction. And then they think they can deal with the litigation without having to suffer a lot of uh, financial windfall from that, where the litigant will be able to press their case against them if they do buy the property in litigation, and then they would end up having to spend thousands of dollars potentially to defend that. There are some predatory uh, purchasers who ignore the norms and again, they actually specialize in buying properties and litigation. So with that being said, it's still the case that if you have a lawsuit that's filed and you have a list pendants at the time of whenever your sale is taking place, it's absolutely the case that you'll still dissuade most people from purchasing the property. And I think the higher the value of the property, the more likely that is to obtain. So how that would play out is if you're talking about a multi-million dollar property with a multi-million dollar debt, the risk for any purchaser is, of course, greater if they go through with this purchase at auction when there's a Liz Pendens on it. It's one thing if you're talking about a $300,000, $400,000 condo and maybe it's got a loan that makes it underwater or with all the equity increases that we've seen in the last, again, two years, maybe it even has 100000 in equity. Either way, maybe a purchaser is willing to float the risk of, let's say, a bad result, two or 300000 here or there. Either way they may think that's a business decision that they can support to whoever is putting up the money and to themselves if they're putting up the money. On the other hand, when you're talking about a multi-million dollar property, you could have a four, five, even $2 million sale uh, where the property value may be uh, higher or lower again no matter what the spread is, there's a much bigger risk if that property is in litigation. Somebody who makes the wrong decision about that and buys the property, they might think they've got some big equity cushion going into the sale, but if they get tied up in litigation for years, uh, they may lose potentially millions because that's the value of the property, or that's uh, similar to the loan amount. Those become big issues and uh, non-judicial foreclosure litigation where the demand amounts of the plaintiffs are often tied to either the property value or the loan amount. And under various statutes, they can get multiples, particularly wrong foreclosure as a pled uh, cause of action here in California. Uh, the bottom line, though, 
seen some recent situations where uh, homeowners have gone to the auction site themselves, and even where there were some particular individuals there and they were clearly interested in buying the property, once they saw the Liz pendants and they saw the the insistence of the homeowner to protect their interest, even when they made it sound like they were going to stick around to bid, they disappeared. So the reason this makes such a big difference uh, in the whole foreclosure arena is because things can look a lot different for for you as a homeowner when the property, quote, unquote, goes back to the beneficiary. So remember, if the auction is held, you can't breathe a sigh of relief, though part of what I'm saying is you breathe kind of a half a sigh of relief if the property goes back to the beneficiary and not to the, not to the so-called bona fide purchaser, meaning a third party at the auction site. That is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because, particularly in places like California, where you have these quite seemingly numerous predatory groups who go around buying these properties in large numbers at auction, they will often go into unlawful detainer court pretty quickly. Unlawful detainer court is simply kind of a lesser included division and section of superior courts of California. There really isn't a separate court per se. It's within the San Diego Superior Court or the Santa Clara Superior Court, wherever the Superior Court is by county. In any event though, there is a kind of separate system of judging. And for those who've been through unlawful detainer, and of course I've talked about it on this show before, things can happen very quickly And it is meant to be a summary proceeding only, so you have limited rights as a defendant. And when there's a third party buying these properties at auction, they often will press forward with an unlawful detainer lawsuit pretty quickly. I mean, it's it's quite disturbing how quick they can be. Whereas if the property goes back to one of these institutional trusts, a U.S. bank alphabet soup trust or a Wells Fargo alphabet soup trust, a Bank of New York Mellon alphabet soup trust, when it goes back to these institutional players, they're holding so many properties on their books. They're holding so many foreclosures on their books. They're holding so many real estate-owned properties on their books. And frankly, they will often just sit on everything for sometimes months. I mean, I've seen longer. I've seen years. Well, that's unusual, but months is not. And you're in a better position as the homeowner, the former homeowner, legally, at least at the facial level. You're in a better position to negotiate with the institutional players it's easier to do a deal with them. Now, it's always difficult to do a deal where you would stay in the property after the sale. However, you're much more likely to be able to arrange that where there isn't a third-party purchaser. 
On the other hand, litigation is always available, uh, you know, in, 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 in a number of different contexts. Yes, there's a grace judicata reality that everybody has to deal with. Um, but litigation is very far-ranging, complex, and options will often go beyond and apart from what at first level looks like maybe a race judicata, judicata situation where supposedly the homeowner has already litigated their way out of court when they lost before. It's more complex than that. There are other types of causes of action that can be brought Yes, under race judicata theory, uh, narrowly construed, the theory will be, well, they could have brought those causes of action earlier, so they're shut down from bringing them later. Well, that's not necessarily the case. Again, it's complicated. And part of the way you get at legal theories like that is you use big strategies tied into the legal theories you're developing. One of the things Neil said on his show last week that I think is worth revisiting is he was talking about kind of using legal principles to get a better advantage in a case. For instance, facts, not an evidence. It's a, it's a classic at trial where evidence is what is happening. That's what a trial procedure is for, the presentation of evidence from both sides. It's a commonplace at trial for at least the, the litigants to say when they're hearing the evidence from the other side, well, actually, Your Honor, that's not evidence. These facts they're talking about are not an evidence. Therefore, they should be stricken from the record absolutely the case that the institutional players will constantly in their pleading, and I see this all the time, their attorneys will constantly bring up facts and make legal arguments based on those facts that aren't even tied to the record, that aren't even alleged. And of course, the facts that they bring up are ones which will make their case more credible. Of course, not the homeowner's case. So that's a line of attack because you can, in pleading, point out to the court in situations uh, various that the other side is really arguing something that's not even in contention from your side. Therefore, they should not be talking about it. Now, I did want to finish on the um, unlawful detainer front. It also ties into bankruptcy procedure. But real quickly on the unlawful detainer front, I just think it's important to emphasize to homeowners, if they lose their house at auction, and again, losing it in a non-judicial foreclosure uh, situation, it will happen simply by the auction being held, even if nobody buys the property as a third-party purchaser because it goes back to the beneficiary. But again, it's typically better for it to go back to the beneficiary. Uh, typically, you're going to be in a better position to negotiate, and typically, if there is an unlawful detainer action brought against you, you can use unlawful detainer legal procedure, of course, to try to create a better settlement environment, and there are proper defenses that you can put forward, and we've talked about those on this show. 
Uh, we've talked about federal removal. We've talked about bankruptcy. The other side will always look at those as illegitimate. They're not. They have their place. They can be used legitimately in the unlawful detainer arena. And the reality is the homeowner is in a better position to use those methods when the so-called plaintiff is the former beneficiary, not this third party, who will be typically much more aggressive in their tactics. So that's all we have time for today. Uh, We will be back next week. And everyone should just continue to follow free outlets to stay plugged in to the trends because they're they're impacting the major economic and other news out there is impacting very much the foreclosure environment. The opinions expressed on the Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.